You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Midtown. In this series, we are following Jesus as He calls us to take on His yoke so that we may experience true flourishing. Hear the word of the Lord. When the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they came together. And one of them, an expert in the law, asked a question to test him. Teacher, which command in the law is the greatest? He said to him, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. The second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, Sojourn Midtown. My name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here. I wish you could be here. Uh, St. Vincent's is all decorated. I don't know if you can see. It's beautiful, ready for Advent, ready for Christmas. Hope you had a great Thanksgiving, and I'm thankful to be able to preach today. So let's pray, and then we'll dive in. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the songs and the scripture and the liturgy that has already warmed our hearts towards you. You are kind to us. You are loving. You are good, merciful, gentle. Lord, we often forget these truths. So Spirit, I ask that you would warm our hearts to your great love for your church. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, not many of you know this, but before I came to work at Sojourn in 2014, I worked at a hotel in the city. And um, I, my, my official title was driver supervisor. So this hotel had a number of drivers that would go to the, to the airport and pick up the guests and bring them back. And then when they were done with their stay, they would, uh, we would drive them and take them back to the airport for their flight home. And as a driving supervisor, my role was as we got uh, requests that were coming in, I would take their names, their flights, I would make these little cards, set them on a desk, and drivers would come and and choose the ones that worked best for their schedule. And one of the perks of being the supervisor is I got to choose whoever I wanted. I I saw the names coming in, and I I could say I wanted this guy or this gal or this family. And... um, not so much this year, but normally Louisville, as you know, we have a lot of conferences and conventions coming through our city, um, and it just so happened that there was a pretty well-known pastor that had just requested to stay at the hotel and requested transportation. And if I said this person's name, you would know who he was, well-known speaker, author, leader, large following. And so I was like, this is my dude. I'm going to meet this guy and we're going to be best friends. And so the day came, got my suit and tie on, drove to the airport, had the little, you know, his little name, name plate thing. And he comes down the escalator. Of course, I recognize him immediately. We, I take his bags, take him in the car and begin asking him questions, uh, make, trying to make small talk. And it turns out that this uh, guy was kind of a jerk. <laughs> he was a jerk. He probably 
and I, I want to um, give him the benefit of the doubt. He was probably having a rough day. He probably was on a long flight. He probably had a screaming child next to him. And I'm sure he, it was just, I'm sure he's a nice guy. I'm not going to tell you if you come up and ask me who it is. I'm not going to tell you <laughs> who it is. Um, but, but it struck me, right? Um, if there was anybody that I thought embodied what Jesus says right here, the first and second greatest command, this is the man that I thought would do that the most. And maybe you're like me, you have people that you look up to, you think very highly of, and, and when we get to know these people, we realize that they're actually very similar to us. They are grumpy, they're rude, they get tired. And so as we come to this passage, we're, we're asking a question like, what is Jesus saying that God requires of us? Who can live up to this and how do we live up to it? So let's jump into the passage. There's, if you remember last week, TPJ preached a sermon on the, the previous passage. The Pharisees are coming with all the trick questions. Uh, they have the, passage, or the, the question about, about the taxes, the question about the wives, and um, Jesus has sort of turned the tables on them. And they're kind of going back to the drawing board and they don't have, they're, they're out of all their trick questions. And so they're just like, okay, let's just ask them something that we're, we're wrestling with right now, right? And we, we can read and see a recorded history of Pharisees and teachers uh, debating this very question. And so this would have been a question that was unresolved even for them. And so they're like, okay, let's just bring this question and maybe this will stump Jesus. He comes and he says, teacher, which command in the law is the greatest. Now, what he's asking is the law was, you know, 613 commands in the Old Testament. They're saying, Jesus, of all of these commands in the Old Testament, which is number one? Which is, uh, which is the most important? And let's see what Jesus says. He says to, to him, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the greatest and most important command. And what Jesus is doing here is he's quoting Deuteronomy 6, 5, which is called the Shema. So this is like the John 3, 16 of the Old Testament. There wasn't an Old Testament back then. It was just, that's all the scriptures that they had. But this was the passage that um, Mary and Joseph, being a good Jewish parents, would have, would have taught to Jesus from a very young age. He would have known this passage um, this is a very well-known passage, and, and he's summarizing it, and, and the, the gist of it is Jesus is saying the most important command in all of the Old Testament is to love God with every fiber of our being, with every thought, with every desire, with every word, with every action. It should all be oriented towards loving our Heavenly Father. He says this is the most important but he doesn't stop there. Remember, the Pharisee asked for the most important command in the law. Jesus goes an extra step. He gives a second command, and he says that all of the laws in the Old Testament uh, and in the law and the prophets hang on these. He says, the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. So this is Leviticus 19, 18. And this, this passage that he's quoting takes a little more interpretive work, right? Um, to understand what it means to love our neighbor as ourselves, we need to understand who is our neighbor 
And we also need to understand what does it mean to love ourselves? What does Jesus have in mind when he says this? The, the first question is fairly straightforward. If we read a parallel account of this passage in Luke 10, um, Jesus answers this. And this is the parable of the Good, the good Samaritan. And we don't have time to, to really delve into that right now. But the summary would be our neighbor is anybody that the Lord brings across our path. And this could be people who look like us or people who don't look like us. It could be people uh, of our age or a different age. It could be people who live in our home or right next to our home. Or as we're singing about and thinking about today, it could be people that live across the ocean. So this is, this is our neighbor, anybody that the Lord brings across our path. And so then the second question is, what does it mean to love ourselves? Well, when we get hungry, what do we do? We go get a snack. When we're thirsty... We go take a drink of water. And so what it means to love ourselves is to take care of ourselves. When we have needs, we, we go and we try to meet those needs. And so to love our neighbor is anybody that comes across our path that has needs. We do what we can as God's people to meet those needs, to, to feed them, to bring them clean water, to clothe them, to care for their practical needs. But I think it's a little deeper than that because Jesus says... Um, that he's the bread of life. Even when we don't have this, our hunger met, we can still be satisfied in him. He says in John 4, the woman at the well who's thirsty, the middle of the day, she's looking for a drink, and he says, come to me and I will be, uh, and I am the, the, I'm the living water that will well up inside of you and you will never thirst again. And so I think according to Jesus, we love ourselves best when we love Jesus the most. We love ourselves best when we love Jesus the most, and so, therefore, by extension, we love our neighbors the best when, yes, certainly we care for their physical needs, but we're also getting them in contact, in relationship with this Jesus who can satisfy things, even when we are hungry, and even when we are thirsty. He says, all the law and the prophets depend on these to commands, and the word depend uh, can also be translated like a hook. So all 613 laws uh, are hanging on these two together, and that's why he gives two instead of one. There's some sort of connection between uh, the first and second greatest command. I think it's like a coin. They're two sides of the same coin, and certainly the first, is, first greatest command is heads. It is the most important, but when we worship God with our whole being, we cannot help but love and care and serve our neighbors who are bearing his image, right? When we're doing that, it's a sign that we are loving God. So it's two sides of the same coin, but it also, uh, the inverse is true. When we violate the first greatest command, when we are not loving God with our whole heart, the result is that people around us suffer. Not so long ago, um, I was having sort of rough day at work, and it was long, and I was tired, and a little discouraged, and I was coming home, and I was thinking, man, I'm so excited to get home, away from the chaos, just to have some quiet, some peace. So I parked my car in the driveway, I go in the front door, 
My uh, lovely wife, Amanda, if you know her, you know how kind and gentle she is. She comes up and greets me with a hug. And instead of receiving this warmth from my wife, I look past her and I see all of these toys on the living room floor. And there was something inside me that just got so frustrated that I snapped at her. Now, you could say in that moment that, Josh, you should, you should have loved Amanda better in that situation. And that's 100% true. 100% true. But I think the more fundamental problem was not that I was not loving Amanda enough. The problem was I was loving something else more than her. When I was in the car coming home, the thing my heart longed for was my personal comfort. It was not to be with her. And so when I come in and I see the the floor with all these toys, which, by the way, toys with three kids, you pick up one, three magically sprout in its place. So it's not like it's uncommon or unreasonable. But when I see her and my comfort is not met, I lashed out at her. And so it's similar when we are not loving Jesus with our whole hearts and instead we are loving something else, the result is that people around us suffer. And this is called idolatry. This is what the Bible calls the state of our human heart. And see, we don't have any problem with the second half of the first grace commandment. We don't have any problem loving with our whole heart and our soul and our mind. We have a problem of loving God with our whole heart, soul, and mind. We replace him with something else, and we think that this object or person or comfort will bring me greater satisfaction than than Jesus. And when we do that, the inevitable result is that people around us suffer. A quick example of this, um, let's say you have, uh, you, and we've all felt this, the emotional adrenaline rush of getting patted on the back, of people saying nice things about you, of overhearing people talk about you in a positive way. You, we love that. And there's something subtle that shifts in our heart where we go from enjoying that, which is that, that's, that's good, to we crave that more than the approval of God. And so what happens is uh, the approval doesn't come as quickly or readily with our roommates or with our family because they see our greatest strengths, but they also see our greatest weaknesses too. But there are places where we uh, can hide and mask our greatest weaknesses pretty well. And so maybe you're going all out in the classroom and you're getting the the grades or in in the workplace and you're getting the, the advancements and the promotions and the raises. People are applauding you. Your heart, the gravity is pulling you away from your neighbors. It's pulling you away from the people that God has put in your life to love and to serve. And what happens is because your heart is worshiping the approval of people, you are neglecting your neighbors. Now we see this elsewhere all over the New Testament, this connection, remember, two sides of the same coin. When we love Jesus, we will naturally serve our neighbors. When we serve idols, the people in our life will suffer. And we see this other places in the New Testament. Let's look briefly at 1 John 4.20. 
John's writing to the church. He says, if anyone says, I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. So John is saying, if you hate your brother or your sister, if you hate your neighbor, it's categorically impossible for you to obey the first commandment. If you're breaking the second greatest commandment, you are also breaking the first greatest commandment. Let's look at another place. Um, this, this requires a little more context, a little more digging, so bear with me, but I think it'll be worth it. 2 Kings 14, everybody's favorite pass, uh, section of the Bible, I know. You were just waiting for me to get here. 2 Kings 14, so in context, uh, in context uh, Israel has split in, in two already. So there's a northern kingdom of Israel, southern kingdom of Judah, and the king at the time of this writing, his name, a guy, uh, it's a, a guy, his name is Jeroboam. So 2 Kings 14, it says, Jeroboam, son of Joash, became king of Israel and Samaria, which was the capital, and he reigned for 41 years. 24, he did what was evil in the Lord's sight. So this is Bible code for he's not a very good dude, right? So he did not, uh, and, and we asked, why was he not a good dude? He did not turn away from all the sins of Jeroboam, son of Naboth, and how he had caused Israel, the sins that he had called Israel to commit. So what we realize is Jeroboam is actually the king. He's named after a previous king. And, and the sinfulness of Jeroboam II is that he is walking in the same path as Jeroboam I. Okay, so now we've got to figure out who is Jeroboam I. Flip to 1 Kings 12. We realize that uh, when the nation of Israel split in half, Jeroboam I is the first king of the northern kingdom. He's the first king. And if you put yourself in his shoes... You think, okay, got this new kingdom, but oh, shoot, uh, the temple is in Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judah, and all the priests are there. So the next feast that happens, everybody, all my people are going to go down to the southern kingdom, and they ain't coming back. So we got to figure out a plan for, to keep them in the northern kingdom. And so this is what he says. Then he made two golden calves, and he said to the people, Going to Jerusalem is too difficult for you. See, he's such a nice guy. He's so kind. Too difficult, Israel. Here, here are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel. He put the other in Dan. This led to sin. So Jeroboam the first, not a good dude because he leads Israel to worship idols. Jeroboam the second, not a good dude because he, he led, just like his namesake, God's people to worship idols. Pretty simple, case closed, Jeroboam's not good, idolatry, we got it covered. Let's look in the third place, the last place, I promise. Let's look at Amos. Now, I want to look at Amos because Amos was a prophet who lived during Jeroboam II's reign. And as a prophet, he was the mouthpiece of God to, to um, proclaim judgment on the sinfulness of Israel and on the king. And so the first part of Amos, he's talking about the nations, little paragraph on Judah. And then I want to look at what he opens up in saying against Israel. And we know what he's going to say, right? It's, it's idolatry, calves, golden calves, all that stuff. All right, let's see. The Lord says... I will not relent from, the punish, from punishing Israel from three crimes, even four. Okay, idolatry. Here we go. Let's go. 
because they sell a righteous person for silver and a needy person for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor in the dust of the ground and obstruct the path of the needy. A man and his father have sexual relations with the same girl, profaning my holy name, and they stretch out beside every altar on garments taken as collateral, and in the house of their God they drink wine obtained through fines. So he is coming after Israel for man-stealing, for oppressing the poor, for sexual sin, and for predatory lending. What is going on here? Is he just completely missing it? Is he looking at some, something completely different? And the reality is no. Amos is seeing the situation accurately just as the, the author of 2 Kings is seeing the situation accurately. And sometimes we think of... Uh, you know, culture or society or how our city operates in these two departments like a seesaw, right? Like we need to have balance in how we talk about the first great commandment and the second great commandment, the idolatry in our culture and uh, the, the injustices around us, how people are suffering. But the problem with a seesaw analogy is that when you get balanced, they're both 50%, right? And that's not fun. Seesaws are meant to be going around anyways. And God calls us to be 100%. Instead of a seesaw, let's think of the first and second great commandment like the tide. And as the tide rises, all the boats in the harbor raise as well. The way you see that the tide is high from a distance is you see that all the boats are higher than they were before. So Sojourn, first question for you this morning is how high is the tide in your heart? How high is the tide in your heart? Is your heart welling and and expanding and exploding towards the God who loves you deeply, who created the stars? Or does it grow cold? And so the boats in the harbor, so to speak, are lowering as well. A couple ways we can assess this. Let's do a quick diagnostic on our heart. First, let's think about the first great commandment. So what do we do? Think about how do we act towards uh, people or things that we love? Well, we think about them a lot. So when, we're, when you're struggling to go to bed, what are the scenes that you are replaying in your mind? As you are sitting idly, you know, waiting for the bus or waiting in line and you're on your phone, where does your thumb idly scroll to? Where does your mind gravitate towards? What gets you most excited? These are clues, data points that help us to discern what our heart is longing for. Let's look at the second grace commandment. How are we doing, Midtown? How are we doing loving our neighbor, the, the people that God has put in our life? One way, and I guess I'll preface this by saying this example illustration is a luxury. Not everybody in this church will be able to relate to it, and certainly most people in the world cannot relate to it. First question is, what do you do with extra money? When you get a tax return or you get a stimulus check, what is the 
first thought of what you do with that money? Are, are, are we thinking, oh, this will give me a chance to bless that family that has this specific need? Or are we thinking, oh, now I can put a shed in my backyard? <laughs> and just to lay all the cars on the table, I have a new shed in my backyard that was not there a year ago. So I'm not judging you guys. And before you come at me with your Chip and JoJo energy, I think Jesus, I think he loves you know, sheds in the backyard. My point is, if every time we have extra money, our first thought is to pimp our patio rather than love our neighbor, what does that tell us about our heart? That's, that's all I'm asking. How do we use our spare words? Are they always tinted with cynicism and sarcasm, or, or are we building people up in love? What's the general trend of our words or our time? Are we so insulated from the inconvenience of people coming across our path that we don't even have an opportunity to love them? We just drive in, park our car, go right into our neighborhood or right into our house, and we don't even know our neighbors' names. So if you're tracking with me, and if you're really thinking about these questions... And if we're really looking at this passage, we are feeling worse off about ourselves right now than we were 30 minutes ago. And I think that's okay. Like, I think that if we're uncovering the idolatry of our heart, it's not an easy pill to swallow. And so I could stand up here and I could give you a pep talk. I could um, give you a Friday Night Lights, last chance you kind of rile up the, the gang, like go get them, and it would feel good, but it won't work. You know, you've had this before. You, you have riled yourself up before, and it never lasts because no pep talk can change our hearts. You don't need a pep talk. What you need, what I need, is a picture of the one who actually lives this out. We need a picture of the one who embodies this. So let's fast forward a couple chapters to Jesus sitting in the garden. He's all alone. He's on his knees. He's sweating. He's crying. He's shaking because he knows what the, the sunlight brings of the next morning. He's all alone. His closest friends are sleeping, even though he's asked them numerous times to, to stay up with him. One of his closest friends has literally sold him out. He knows the, the physical agony that comes the next day. And yet even more than that, he knows that this eternal, compassionate, intimate relationship he's had with the Father since before he was even born will now be changed and he is going to receive the wrath of God for the sins of mankind. And yet, he loves his Father. He says, not my will, but yours. And so when the angry mob comes, he goes quietly. When he stands in a sham trial, receiving the blows and the insults of these wicked men, he takes it. 
And along with that, he takes a cross, he walks up a hill, he has metal spikes impaled through his palms, through his feet. Why does he do this? He does it because he loves his father. He would rather take this pain and this torture and receive the love of his father than to receive all the comforts of the world, all the approval of all the lungs on this planet. This is the single greatest example of the first greatest commandment, Jesus hanging on the cross. But if you're tracking with me, remember it's two sides of the same coin. Not only is it the single greatest picture of the first great commandment, but it is also the single greatest picture of the second. Because when he's hanging there on the cross, this is the the greatest declaration of Jesus' love for you that he could possibly do. Yes, he went to the cross because he loves his father, but yes, he goes to the cross because he loves you. And this is not some Hallmark Christmas movie, you know, cheesy love. This is the type of love that goes silently with an angry mob for you that stands in a sham trial, for you that is hung on a cross, for you. Jesus loves you deeply. You were the neighbor that the Father brought across Jesus' path. And the reason why this is the most loving act in human history is because not only is this a picture of obedience, but this is the pardon when we fail to live up to it, right? When we are convicted of sin, when people tell us of our sin, Jesus has died for that. But more than that, in, in, in our moments of silence, that dark clarity where we realize, you know what? I genuinely do want people's approval more than God's. I genuinely do want comfort more than the comfort of God. And so I'm going to numb my anxieties with alcohol or with porn or endless scrolling of Instagram. I want that more than I want to be embraced by my father. Jesus knows about this. This is what Jesus sees and he loves you and his payment is a pardon for that. And more than that, he's the picture, he's the pardon, but also when he comes back from the grave, because he didn't stay dead, he is the power to live into the first and second great commandment. Because Jesus, by coming from the grave, gives us his spirit. He is seated at the right hand of the Father right now, praying for you that you would be empowered and emboldened to be able to love him and to love our neighbor. So Sojourn, when, when you're wondering, what does this look like? Don't look to people who are flying into an airport, who write lots of, lots of books. Think about Jesus. And when you think about Jesus, and you are reminded of your sin and how your heart longs for other things and people more than him, remember Jesus. He is your pardon. And when you have a desire to follow Jesus in this command, think about Jesus. Jesus gives us the gospel power. So before we transition, I want to leave us with a few 
practical steps. Because if we're tracking with the logic, if we we love, we're called to love our neighbors as ourselves, and we do that. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, Lee Pastor Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value we gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless him, mission. Our obedience of the first for more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash Midtown. And I know for a lot of us, for me at times, the difficulty of 2020 puts us in a place where we don't feel like Jesus loves us. He feels distant from us. But remember, the way we feel about Jesus can never change the way he feels about you. And that is proven on the cross. So the first recommendation thing to consider is how do you put yourself in the crosshairs of God's white hot love for you, the type of love that would hang on a cross for you? How do you remind yourself of that? Well, I think it starts with just being honest. Like the pardoning work of Jesus on the cross gives us the ability to be honest with him and say, Jesus, I don't feel this, but Jesus, help me feel this. Help me desire you. Help me to love you with every fiber of my being. Mark time in your calendar, today even, this week, to just be with him in prayer, to soak in Psalm 23 or John 10 or John 15 or ask somebody in your community group, where can I start? Second, as we look at the second great commandment, how do we take practical steps to love our neighbors this week, this Christmas season? I think, for me at least, that, that, that uh, challenge of w- when are we insulating ourselves from inconvenience? Who are, or another way to think about it, who are the people in your community group that have not showed up for the past three weeks? Nobody misses CG because their life is going amazing. What would it look like to shoot them a text or give them a call, just say, hey, I'm, pr- I'm praying for you, I'm thinking about you? And maybe you only got time for five-minute conversation and it turns into a 50-minute conversation. So be it. Pursue the people in this church, people in your workplace with love. One of the things that was, um, I think, hardest for the pastors and the staff to swallow when we looked at that Midtown um, survey that we had you all do was that this season is particularly hard for singles in our church. And if you think about it, like we can't, it, when we normally have, I guess it's not normal church, but when we are here with limited capacity, families come in and they sit together. But if you came in yourself, you don't have a family at this church, you have to sit alone. Imagine how, um, imagine how hard that is. So first of all, I... Applaud the grittiness of you singles who are still at it. But families, what does it look like to consider that there are people at this church who are feeling lonely, isolated? How can we 
rally around them and in safe ways and in you know, appropriate ways, masks, outdoors, whatever, we want to be wise. But how can we show them that they are a loved and a valuable part of this community, this church? Singles. Another uh, part of the survey we found is some of the other people that are struggling the most are families with lots of young kids. And, you know, with NTI and all the craziness of, of this season, it's difficult and it is also lonely. So singles, what would it look like for you to love your neighbor? And rather than wait for the family to reach out to you, what if you went up to them and you said, hey, I know this is a hard season for everybody. How can I be of service to you? Just tell me something to do. So let's be a people who as we gaze on the beauty and the love of Jesus, our hearts are set aflame to him. And the result is that we love the people in this church and we love the people in the city and we love the people across the ocean. Normally we end services with communion, but we're not going to do that because communion is a family meal. We take this little sanitary packet and this little wafer but for some of us, it'll be a couple weeks since taking the Lord's Supper. Some of us, it's been like nine months. My prayer for us is that the absence and the proximity away from the table would not allow our hearts to grow cold, but we would long for the day when we will be here together. And so let's pray in remembrance of this meal of Jesus' sacrifice that exhibits the first and second great commandment. Hi, I'm Jamal Williams, lead pastor of Sojourn Midtown. Thanks for listening. At Midtown, we value gospel-centeredness, biblical faithfulness, transformative relationships, diverse fellowship, creativity in the arts, and relentless mission. For more sermons, info about our church, visit sojournchurch.com slash midtown.